Well, we want to begin with where we left off last time. We've been in the portion of the course dealing with interpretation, and we looked at issues of the text, and then we looked at word studies or dealing with terms. How do you do a word study? Uh, one of the most important areas to consider. And then uh, last time we concluded by looking at doing structural analysis. So we want to pick up there, and I'll give you another example, how to, or a couple of examples in these areas. So we're looking at the exegetical portion of the course, interpretation, the bottom line, the essence of it is seeking what the author intended to communicate. We call that seeking the author's willed meaning. And as I mentioned, uh, we've looked at the text, issues of the text. By way of reminder, also, this issue is somewhat related to that general hermeneutical principle. We call it the spiritual principle. We have a high view of Scripture, and because of the high view of Scripture, we want to be very, very careful that we are looking at the text that we consider to be the inspired text, and the original autographs are what are considered to be the original text and the inspired text, so we want to, as best as we can, reconstruct that. Now, in uh position you find yourselves in with this introductory course, you may not have everything you need to be able to do that yet, but I wanted to give you an exposure to that. We looked at word studies. This gets into that general principle of linguistics, the linguistic principle, dealing with issues of the language. And a main issue is, what are the meanings of words? You may have observed certain terms, certain words, and you've considered maybe this word is so important or important enough that you want to really narrow in on it, and you do a word study on it. This is in the interpretive stage where you want to focus on the meaning as it's used in a particular context. Last time we looked at structural analysis, and I just barely got into it before we ran out of time, so let's pick up where we left off, and what I'll do is give you a quick review here. We looked at basic analysis, and I mentioned if this is all you do, you're going you're gonna to be well ahead of understanding any given passage, if you are able to just do this basic analysis. And by the way, this part of exegesis is the part that you will probably spend the most time, because it involves, again, that hermeneutica principle that we call the linguistic principle. It deals with the details of the text, how all of the words fit together. And when you talk about structural analysis, structure in language pertains to how words are related to one another to form sentences, to form paragraphs, etc. So, basic analysis. I'm going to give you three ways to analyze the text. They're all related. Each one is just more specific and more detailed. Basic analysis involves, first of all, isolating complete sentences. Secondly, you want to identify within the sentence any clauses, if there's more than one, or you want to make the observation that uh, this sentence only has one clause. 
And if it only has one, then it has to be a dependent clause. Thirdly, after you've identified both independent and dependent clauses, then you want to identify the subjects and the verbs of each of those clauses. And basically that's, if you can do that, you, you're basically following the thought pattern of the author. And if there's any other grammatical issues of concern in that sentence, you want to make some notice of that. But once you've done this, uh, you have done essentially the basics, at least grammatical analysis. The next type of analysis is called mechanical layout, and I gave you a handout on it. Do you still have that handout from last time? The definition of a mechanical layout it's similar to what I just did here with basic, except you actually rewrite the text in a form that will reveal the grammatical structure. This is a good practice, to rewrite the text in a form that will reveal the grammatical structure. That's what you're attempting to do. So what's involved in mechanical layout? What would be the first thing that you would want to do? What did you do in basic? Isolate a sentence. Again, yeah, same thing. Isolate. Start with a complete sentence. And then the second thing is you want to, basically you want to do the same thing as you did with the uh, basic analysis, except you're taking it one step beyond that. You're rewriting the text. In that sentence, now you want to look at independent clauses. You want to identify any independent clauses. And when you rewrite the text, you are putting the independent clauses as far to the left on the sheet of paper as you can. In other words, no margin. Well, little margin, but the least margin. So at the extreme left-hand side of the, the page, you're going to write out an independent clause. Now, any subordinate clauses, you indent one space or one indentation. And what you've done is now you've just separated out so that you can just quickly and visually see that independent clause, and now you can see that subordinate clause because it's indented one, uh, one step. And I've got all this on your sheet there. So if you have a, an independent clause or a main statement, and if you have two of them, then they're coordinated and they're both far extreme left side. If you have two subordinate clauses, then it would be also one indentation in. And then you just keep working on whatever other elements there are in that uh, sentence. If you have some modifiers like participles or prepositional phrases, whatever might modify something in these either subordinate clauses or independent clauses, you move it in one more indentation. What you're trying to do is visually, graphically or visually, be able to lay out the structure of that sentence. And if you have any lists, another indentation. You might have a list of descriptive phrases or even a list of prepositional phrases and you just lay them out. So now when you look at that sentence, you can see the structure on the page. You have a visual picture of the structure on the page. And then here's your coordinate clauses. 
if it's later on, for example, here, it lines up with this first independent clause. It's coordinate. If it's coordinate to an independent, obviously it's also an independent, so it's to the extreme left-hand side of the page. So this, again, is not too difficult. And in the process, uh, you may even uh, go to the next stage and you might circle or put in squares the, the main verbs or the main subjects and main verbs if you want to graphically see them again. And what I've given you on this example sheet is not only the, the basics of it, but also an example from Ephesians 4.11-16. through 16. An example of one of Paul's long sentences is on the second sheet that I've handed out there. Before we look at the example there, on the top of your sheet there, what do you start with when uh, you do mechanical layout? What do you want to start with? Isolate a complete sentence. So in uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, you can't quite see it, but if you look at it in your New American Standard, it actually breaks it down 11, 12, 13, and the sentence ends in verse 13, and actually in the Greek text, it goes all the way through verse 16. So we'll take it part by part, and if you're just using the New American Standard, then we'll take 11 through 13 first. That would be our sentence. So notice on the example, in verse 11, I put that first independent clause, or at least the first part of it, and he gave, and you have what, the subject and the verb, so basically, everything in verses 11 through 13 relates to somebody giving something. That's the heart of everything that we have here. That's the beginning of the independent clause. Now, the independent clause will probably go all the way to the comma there, or maybe even further than that, probably all the way to the semicolon there, after Christ. Yeah, that would be the first independent clause. So even the first independent clause has a lot of little elements to it. There's not a subordinate clause in verses 11 and 12, but you do have a subordinate clause in verse 13. That's why I have it indented there. You see that? He gave several things for certain purposes, and this giving is until something else. So you have an independent clause and you have a dependent clause. And then all the other little things in there just modify that first independent clause or tell us something about that first independent clause. tells us what he gave. These are like direct objects. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and I've got a list of them, so I've got them indented well into the, the sheet there. gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Do you see that? But then I've got some modifiers in there that are prepositional phrases, so they're not indented as far to the right as are that is that list of direct objects there. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and actually I've got two. If you wanted to, you could uh, drop that of the saints and kind of put it indented from the for the equipping, and similarly for the work, and then you could put of service 
indented under for the work, to the building up of the body of Christ. You could break that down as well if you wanted to. If you wanted to kind of be more detailed in your breaking down so you can see that visually as well. But see how you can see this visually? You can see the structure there visually. And then verse 13, until we all attain to something. You have a dependent clause there, so it's indented. And then under it, we have some modifiers there. We have some prepositional phrases. uh, One order of prepositional phrases. And then we have a secondary order of prepositional phrases. To the unity of the faith, I see that on one order. And of the knowledge, one order. And then we have some prepositional phrases that modify knowledge there. So I've indented all, all of those. Of the knowledge of the Son of God. Of the knowledge to a mature man. Of the knowledge to the measure of the stature. See how I've done that? Following? And then, by this time you're running out of indentations here, so I kind of move it over, but then I draw that line to show you that all of this is subordinate and telling me something about this stature which belonged to the fullness of Christ. And actually, this is a subordinate clause. Oh, the reason I put it over there is because it's a subordinate clause, but it is subordinate and modifying stature. That's why I draw the line there. Which belong to the fullness of Christ which would be the subject of that subordinate clause, belong would be the verb. Get it? And similarly, in verses 14 through 16, a different sentence in the New American Standard. And if you're diagramming it in the Greek text, it might look slightly different from this, or if you're doing a mechanical layout in the Greek text. See how mechanical layout works there? Any questions on that? By the way, this is... uh, Typical sentence in Paul, real long. So long that New American Standard breaks it into two sentences. So that's basic analysis. That's mechanical layout. And next we want to look at diagramming. The ultimate is diagramming. And this deals with the most detailed grammatical analysis that uh, you can do. And for me, personally, I made a commitment early on, and partly because of my weakness in grammar, and to help me make sure that I covered all bases and made sure I understood the grammar, I started early on to diagram, and over the years, I consider this the most important step in the whole exegetical process, at least for me. And I actually, except for the preliminary things that I shared with you in terms of preliminary exegesis, this is basically the first thing that I do before I even get into the text, because the diagramming does everything else, or it exposes everything else, the other areas that I need to concentrate on in terms of further study. So I began with diagramming, and not only does it lay out grammatically everything, but it uh, is the foundation for just about every other area of study that I do in that particular passage. And I do it in the Greek text. It's actually easier in the Greek text than it is in English. So I do it in the Greek text, 
And over the years, I've diagrammed all four Gospels because I taught the life of Christ and looked at virtually every passage. And I've done all of the book of Acts. I've taught through the book of Acts and diagrammed all of the book of Acts, all of Romans, parts of 1 Corinthians, all of Ephesians, all of Philippians, all of Titus, half of 1 Thessalonians. I'm in the process in chapter 11 of Hebrews right now because I'm teaching it. First and Second Peter and the book of Revelation. So I've diagrammed over three quarters of the New Testament in the Greek text. What's the most satisfying thing you discovered? By doing that? Just the satisfaction of having a a feel, just a real good grasp, a a sense of, I I think I understand the structure of this passage. In fact, I like to use the analogy, how many of you do uh, crossword puzzles? Any of you do? You guys don't buy newspapers anymore, right? (laughs) Yeah. At one time, crossword puzzles were real popular for a lot of people, and they enjoyed doing them, and it's just a fun thing. But the same satisfaction, getting back to what you asked, the same satisfaction when you've completed that last word there, you've got the last words in there, ah, I got it done. That's kind of the same sense that you have when you've finished a a paragraph or even a sentence. I'll mention this later on, but it also is the basis for lots of other important steps that I'll share with towards the end here. So let's talk a little bit about diagramming. And like I said, the more complex the sentence, the more important it is that you do any kind of grammatical analysis and particularly diagramming. So these sentences of Paul, in order to really follow what he's saying, it's difficult to do it without actually doing some grammatical analysis, at least the basic analysis. And then the diagramming actually obviously gives you the more detail. So what is diagramming? First of all, it's just graphically portraying each word of the sentence. So we're talking about each word. That means you have to make an account of every word in the sentence. And again, it gives you a graphic or a visual picture of the structure. And I'll try to illustrate that when we look at the example. So diagramming is graphically portraying each word of the sentence. I'm going to use this little illustration of a puzzle. This might be what your sentence looks like when you first open the page of the Bible. Just lots of words and it doesn't make any sense, doesn't come together. And just like in any puzzle, what you're doing is you're trying to fit all of the pieces together. And just like any puzzle, when you're completed, then you have the picture before you. But to begin with, it's just a lot of words. And may make a little bit of sense to you, but you may not have a full grasp of the whole sentence. So what's the first thing that you do when you uh, begin grammatical analysis? Isolate the sentence, always. So number one, isolate complete sentences. In the analogy, the complete sentence is is kind of the uh, edge pieces. That's the first thing you do when you put together a puzzle. Because that gives you all of the boundaries. Everything has to fit within those boundaries. So also with a sentence, 
Everything has to relate and fit together and work together in that sentence. So when you isolate a sentence, it's like putting together the edge pieces. And then, obviously, what do you do? Identify the clauses within that sentence. We're essentially repeating what we've already done with basic analysis and mechanical layout, except now we're going one step further. So we're doing the same thing, now we're just carrying it to the next level in terms of detail. So you identify the clauses, and when you identify the clauses, what's the first thing that you look for here, identifying the clauses? Find the independent clause first, because that's where you want to start your diagramming. You diagram, first of all, the first independent clause, and if it's got a second independent clause, then you deal with that secondly. So identify the clauses, breaking them down into independent, dependent. And as you work through a sentence, you do the same thing that we've already done. Independent clauses, and then you can diagram dependent clauses, and find subject and verb again. Subject and verb. Nothing different. So what is diagramming entail? Well, first of all, you have to start with a set of conventions. And the conventions don't matter. Now, for the purpose of this course, it I'd encourage you to use the conventions I give you, but if you don't like these conventions, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are consistent in using the conventions that uh, you use. So there's nothing magical about the conventions. And the set that I've got may be different from a grammar book that you might pick up, or if you want to modify them to suit your purposes, that's fine. The main thing is once you have a set of conventions, then it's good to make sure that you not only know what you're doing, but that you stick with them and you be consistent in using them. The conventions that I use, you start off with a horizontal line, like this, broken up with a vertical line that passes beyond the horizontal. Because what am I going to put on the two sides of that vertical line, obviously? Subject and verb of the first independent clause. So I'm putting the subject to the left of the vertical line and the verb to the right. So that's your basic convention. And like I said, if you identify the subject and the verb, everything else in the sentence is going to tell you something about that. So you will notice in your diagramming, everything will be tied to either the subject or the verb in some way or related to the subject and the verb in some way. So that's your starting point. After that, probably in some order of uh, priority, if, you, if your sentence has a direct object, in other words, the object of the action of the verb, this is the convention for a direct object. It's another vertical line that stops at the horizontal line. So that's the convention for a direct object. And the direct object, obviously, is to the right of the vertical line. And if it's a direct object, it's related to the verb in that it is receiving the action of the verb. So relates back to the verb, always. The next convention is any modifiers with nonverbal ideas. 
in this example, I'm relating it to the subject. So in that case, it's more than likely an adjective, but it can be something else as well. This is the convention for a modifier of a nonverbal idea. So if it's an adjective, you put the adjective here. And if it's an adjective that modifies the subject, then you put it under the subject as you have it here, as I have it on the sketch there. Now, obviously, an adjective could modify a noun that's a direct object, and if it's modifying the direct object, then it goes here. It modifies a direct object. See that? But this is a convention, the slanted line and the horizontal line with the modifier on the horizontal line. Got it? Now, if you have the same convention modifying the verb, and it's a nonverbal idea, what do we call that? If it's modifying a verb? Adverb. So it'd be the same, except instead of an adjective, it's an adverb, and you would put the little lines under the verb part. If you have an indirect object, it's very similar to this modifier of nonverbal idea, except it's got this little projection of the horizontal line beyond the slanted line. Indirect objects. Next, if you have prepositional phrases, it's almost the same convention, except that you have an additional vertical line that separates the preposition, preposition to the left of the vertical line, and the object of the preposition to the right of the vertical line. And you again, you might have a prepositional phrase that modifies the subject, I've got this one modifying the verb, but if you have it modifying the subject, then you just move everything over here under the subject. Slanted line under the subject. Or, again, under the direct object. Or you might even have a prepositional phrase that is modifying this prepositional phrase, then you would have it over here under the object of this preposition. Or you could have it anywhere. You could have it under this. You could have it under modifying under the... Uh, an adjective or even an adverb, then whatever it is modifying, that's where you put it. But that's the convention. Now you're looking for word relationships. In fact, prepositional phrases are relationships. But any other sort, like uh, verbal ideas. Here's a modifier with a nonverbal idea. Here's a modifier, partial verbal idea. This is what I use for participles participles. Horizontal line with a vertical line that ties it to whatever it's modifying. And again, it can modify the verb. It could modify virtually anything. Participles can modify adjectives, can modify any number of things. That's the convention. Infinitives, very similar to participles, except I've got this double vertical line identifying an infinitive. If you have a compound idea, then I have these, kind of these bracketed symbols here. And in this case, if you have two subjects and one verb, then you have one subject on one line and you have a second subject on another line. And usually you'll have an and or a but or a, con you know, some sort of a coordinating conjunction that joins these two together. And again, you use the same convention. Let's say you have two verbs, one subject, then you'd have this bracketed idea with two verbs on it instead of two subjects. Or this could be an entire clause. 
I'll show you that later on in a moment. On your handout sheet there, I've got an in, uh, I've got two independent clauses joined together. See that there? Not so much in English, but you have terms that are in opposition to one another. You just put one term and the term that it's in opposition to next to it with an equal sign. This is not so common in English, but it, it's very common in, in Greek. It does occur in English. Subordinate clauses. Here's the convention for subordinate clauses. Obviously, this is your independent clause. And by the way, if you have a subject complement rather than a direct object, this is the convention for a subject complement, a slanted line that stops at the horizontal line, subject complement. And usually subject complements, you have a to-be verb here. Something is something else. It's not a direct object. It's it's not an action verb. So it's a subject complement. And for you that you're, you're taking Greek, usually it's in the nominative case. Predicate yeah, predicate, predicate nominative. Yeah. Okay, so that's the independent portion, and this is the dependent portion. The convention is a slanted line in the opposite direction of those other slanted lines that we've used along with the same convention that you have for an independent clause, except it's dependent because it's shown in this configuration. And in this case, this dependent clause would be modifying the verb, but it, you could have a dependent clause that modifies a subject or something else. And you have a subordinating conjunction that makes this subordinating, usually, and you have a subject and a verb by definition. Otherwise, it's not a subordinate clause. Now, in your handout, I've got this subordinating clause under the, the second independent clause there. And here's the idea with uh, independent clause, and in this case with a subject complement, and a subordinating conjunction that ties it to a subordinate clause. And then now you have a subordinating conjunction and a second independent clause with a subject and a verb. And this is how you would coordinate those two. Do you remember that example I gave you on the basic, Acts 1, 9? That first independent clause was here. He was lifted up. Okay, he was lifted up, verb. And the first dependent clause was... While they were watching well, there were two of them. The first one was after he said, after he said, said these things would be direct object over here. And then you have a second one that would uh, be over here. The second one would be while they, subject, were watching, I think, the verb there. So you'd have two subordinate clauses modifying the first. And then you'd have and, a coordinating conjunction, and he he was he was taken up in a cloud, probably a prepositional phrase, probably modifying the action. See that? So you can superimpose that example right there on that diagramming. Sometimes you might have introductory words, but this would be like an introductory transitional word where you ha actually have a sentence. It starts with a for or even an and. Then you have the subject and the verb. That's how I do that convention. Like a, 
four car? Yeah. Yeah, that is not subordinating anything. It's just tying it to the, the previous paragraph. Yeah, you can have a paragraph that starts that way. In fact, we encountered one in Hebrews. Yeah, look at Hebrews 10, 26. And we'll just look at it in English text. 10, 26. Starts a totally new paragraph in verse 26, but it ties it back to the prior paragraph. But notice the four. So it's not subordinating. It's not a subordinating clause. Although the if gives you a dependent clause, if we go on sinning willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, the first independent clause is there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But the for there is kind of an introductory word that just ties it back to the prior paragraph. See that there? It's not uncommon. You'll see that often. You can also have... A main clause, and I don't have it spelled out here. Obviously, you have a subject and a verb. And in relative clauses, this is the convention for a relative clause. For a relative clause is this dotted line tying the relative clause to the main clause. This is an example of a main clause with an antecedent. A main clause that includes, say, Christ or some or some specific noun. Then you have a pronoun, he, over here in maybe another clause or in another phrase. And this dotted line ties the relative pronoun to the antecedent. And I use that same convention for a relative clause, not just a relative pronoun, where you have the antecedent that it modifies. I don't think that's on your outline there or your your sheet there. It's possible to have an entire clause that acts as a subject. We call that a subject clause. I've got examples of that on your handout sheet. If it's an entire clause that's a subject, I put it up on stilts and elevate it above. But all of this clause acts as the subject of this sentence. And it's possible to even have a verb clause that does the same thing. It's also possible to have a or have an object clause, and if it has a subordinating conjunction, you do it this way. You can put it on top with a direct object thing here, or you can do it below like that. Either way would work. So you have sentences like that, where the entire subject is an entire clause in itself. Now that's a subordinate clause, but it's a subordinate clause that acts as a subject of a main clause or a verb clause that acts as the verb of a main clause, etc. See those conventions? I think we've covered virtually all of them. So there's not too many of them. And after you've completed your diagramming, you've filled in all of places that each puzzle piece fits, and now you have a complete picture and obviously, if one of these is out of place, then it leaves either a gap there or the picture is a little distorted. See the analogy? And once you've done that, and just like when you finish a puzzle, now this is a pretty simple one, but once you finish the puzzle, you have the satisfaction, oh, I've got every piece in its right place. And now this thing makes sense. Now I see clearly this picture. And that's the, that's what you want to get to when you get done with your diagramming. And once you get done to your diagramming, 
you have a pretty good feel for how everything relates to everything else, and it's giving you the foundation to be able to see in your mind that thought, that idea that the author is trying to communicate. So every word has its proper place. And by the way, this this is context. In other words, this you've filled up the context. And if you're doing a word study on any particular word, now you you are not only understanding, let's say you're looking at this puzzle piece here, now you're not only understanding what head means, but you're seeing how it relates grammatically to everything else. And in this case, head is related to a deer. And it's related to a shepherd or somebody that's caring for it. So in diagramming, this is what diagramming will accomplish for you. Number one, it'll, as I've been emphasizing, reveal the grammatical structure of that sentence in as much detail as you can go. So it reveals the grammatical structure. The second thing that it'll do for you, it forces you to make decisions for every word. That doesn't mean that the decisions that you have made are necessarily correct, but it'll force you to at least make a stab at it. And personally, when I diagram, I'll make these decisions, but invariably, uh, as I work through it, I'll change my mind and say, oh, I think this modifies this instead of this. And sometimes it's not totally clear in the biblical text, but now you understand the possibilities or the options. In other words, it could modify this, but it could also potentially modify this. And as you continue to work, and as you get closer to the end, then you refine this decision and you come to a conclusion concerning what it actually modifies. And it may take even a reading of a commentary to help you to make that final decision there. But at least, to begin with, it'll force you to make some decisions as to how do all these words fit together. Just like as you're working in that puzzle, the piece may fit uh, physically in one spot, but once you start putting all of the other pieces together, the colors don't match and the features of the artwork just don't match and you figure, oh, this is in the wrong place, pull it out. This other piece is the one that goes here. Same thing. Thirdly, it's your basic worksheet for all other analysis. And what I do on my diagramming sheet, if I have a, an odd form or I want to make sure that I've got the tenses right or I'll parse the, the words on my sheet there if it's not clear, if I don't remember the, the exact forms... I'll make sure that I do, and then I'll write them on there as I continue to make sure I understand all of the parts of speech on that. So it's your basic worksheet for all other analysis, not just grammatical. It'll also, in terms of uh, other areas, it'll identify what words you want to prioritize if you're going to do a word study on them. Remember, if you're going to spend all that time doing a word study, you don't want to do a word study on a word that is not as important in that sentence as perhaps one or two others that are far more important. And your diagramming and your analysis here will highlight that. 
So if you got a, for example, if you got a subordinating clause that modifies another subordinating clause, there might be a word in there that you think, oh, I want to do a word study on it, but it's way down the chain in terms of importance in that sentence. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do a word study on it, but in terms of priority, there might be two or three that you might do before that one. Fourthly, it brings analysis and synthesis together because you're you're beginning to put the passage back together. Analysis is you're breaking it down to understand the parts. Diagramming, not only are you breaking it down, okay, this is the subject, this is the verb, this is the subordinate clause. So you're breaking it apart and understanding the parts, but now you're putting it together. How do all these parts relate? So it brings analysis and synthesis together. And fifthly, very important, it's the basis for your exegetical outline. Your exegetical outline gives you the structure of a passage so that once you can do an outline of a passage, you basically understand that passage. I'm going to show you how the exegetical outline or the outline of the passage comes right directly out of your diagramming. Now, your outline, you can derive an outline from the basic analysis and from your uh, mechanical layout as well. But since this is the most detailed, this gives you the most detail in terms of your outline that we'll talk about. We got that? So, let's take a look at this sheet of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. As we already identified the main clause of that first sentence that runs through verse 13, we said that there was one independent clause, and we said that the beginning of it was, and he gave. And in fact, that's the main subject, and that's the main verb. See that? So he gave is the heart of everything that he's saying in that long extended sentence. Even if you even stop at verse 13, as the English text puts a period there, But if you take it all the way to the end of verse 16, everything from uh, verse 11 through 16 has something to do and is somehow related with he gave. What did he give? Well, we have a direct object. He gave a series of four things there, or a list of four things. He gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. He gave some as evangelists. And he gave some as pastors and teachers. And grammatically, I put them together because uh, grammatically they seem to fit together. They may be distinct, and there may be some elements, and obviously there's some differences, but those two for some reason are grouped together, pastors and teachers. That's the heart of everything else he, he says. Everything else simply modifies the fact that he gave these gifts whoever the he is in this context. So somehow, everything else must be related. Now the next verse, verse 12, is a series of several prepositional phrases. And I see them, and by the way, I use that same convention as I do adjectives and adverbs for prepositional phrases, and the only addition there is a vertical line that separates the preposition from the latter part of the phrase, or the object of the preposition. This is one way of diagramming verse 12. Do you see that? 
this way kind of sets those phrases somewhat in series to one another. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and notice we have a second prepositional phrase that modifies each of those. For example, for the equipping, and then we have a prepositional phrase that modifies the equipping of the saints, that modifies the equipping. And in this way, if it's in a series like this, the equipping is modified for by the next one for the work, which is modified of service. And that work is modified to the building up of the body of Christ. So we have a series of two more. You see, that's one way of diagramming it. But you might decide, maybe that's not the proper way. There's another option. You can, instead of taking them as a series, you might see them more as coordinate with one another. And another option of diagramming them would be this way, where you have four, there's a preposition, equipping, of, and in your diagramming, I put the article with the word that it goes with, of the saints. Does that make sense? That's the first series of prepositional phrases for the equipping of the saints. And if they're in, rather than in sequence, it's possible that they could be broken into a parallel series for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And then the third one here, for, another preposition, and the object of the preposition for the building up of the body. And the body is modified by another prepositional phrase of Christ. You see the difference between the two ways I've got, the one on the sheet and the one on the board here? This one puts them kind of on an equal basis in parallel with one another. The one that I've got on uh, the, the handout sheet, I've got them in a series where the priority is the uh, the equipping of the saints and then uh, that is modified by the next sequence for the work of service and then that one is modified by the next series of prepositional phrases. Does that make sense? See the two, two ways of doing that? Now that's an exegetical choice. And you have to decide which one probably is best representative in that context. But at least you can see the two different options. And that's one of the things that diagramming will help you to sort through. Personally, I, I prefer the one that I've got on the sheet. I think that one is more representative. I think in actual uh, display of gifts, I think this is the way that they kind of sequence out, more in sequence rather than in parallel. But the point at this stage is this is helping you to make some of those decisions, those grammatical decisions. And just grammatically alone, either one of those are, are possibilities in terms of how you would diagram it. See the distinction there? Also, uh, there might be an issue, Does do those prepositional phrases modify the, the giving? Or do they modify the he? Well, in this case, I think it clearly modifies the giving. So that's why it's on the right side of that vertical line separating the subject from the verb. 
Now, it, the preposition phrases don't always necessarily modify the the verb. In this case, I think they do. And it appears that everything modifies the verb. So, verse 13 kind of gives the time frame of the giving. The giving is going to go on until something. Or he gave until something. The giving went on until something. Until we all, and this looks like it's future, until we, and then the all modifies the we, attain to something, and then now we have a series of other prepositional phrases. But everything in verse 13 tells you a little bit more about the giving. Everything in verse 12 tells you also something more about the giving. Does that make sense? The he gave is the most important element of the sentence. Everything else is telling you something about it, and you're trying to sort out how does it all fit together. And even 14 through 16, he's giving the as a result. In other words, this is this is kind of the outcome of the giving. As a result, and then I see two things in there. First part of verse 14, we are to be something, and he's going to tell us what we are to be. And then in verse 15, we are to grow up into something. You see that? That's parallel. And then everything else is kind of related to that. And what you're just doing is you're just working your way through seeing how everything fits together. Now, one of the assignments is going to ask you to uh, either do a mechanical layout or a diagramming. If you think you are able to do the diagramming, I'd recommend you at least give it a try. It'll give you a good good practice at doing it. But I can't stress I, I, how important it has been for me. And actually, once I get done with the diagramming, it almost seems like the passage just falls into place for me. Because in fact, I have kind of sorted out all of the elements of it and I can see how it all relates. And from that diagram, I can just look at it and graphically, it just tells me where everything relates, how everything fits together. Unless I've made a mistake or made a, a choice that probably is not the best one in terms of the diagramming. But once I do that, then the next stage is to outline it. And my outline, my exegetical outline, the outline of the passage, we call that an exegetical outline. What that exegetical outline is supposed to do is to, again, convey exactly what the author is trying to communicate. And you're trying to put it in your own words, describing what the author is saying. It pops right out of the diagramming. The outlining stems from and comes right out of the diagramming. So I can look at that and I can see the main elements. I can see the Roman numerals. I can see A's. I can see the little ones or the ones and the little A's, etc. Right from the diagramming. So my outlining comes right out of the diagramming. Let's practice on another passage. Let me give you an example, you're already in Acts chapter 1. Let's review that. You did an assignment on that. You uh, made 25 observations on Acts 1.8. And let's look at that. Let's actually diagram Acts 1.8. So what's the first thing you want to do before you start diagramming anything? Isolate the sentence. Isolate the complete sentence. Okay, where does the sentence begin? Where does the sentence begin? Verse 7. 
doesn't begin in verse 8. So I asked you to do an assignment that starts in the middle of a sentence. And I was hoping that you, and I think, let's see, I think you you, you made that observation, didn't you? Uh, yeah. So that would be a, a very important observation to make, is that verse 8 is not the beginning of the sentence. In fact, uh, the observation would be that the sentence begins in verse 7. And where does the sentence end? Does it end at verse 8? In this case, yes. So the complete sentence is verses 7 through 8. So in diagramming, that's what we want to diagram. So the next thing you want to do is isolate the main independent clause. Now, there may be more than one independent clause, but what's the main one? At least grammatically. You shall receive in verse 8 uh, not grammatically take another look at it now this is an interesting sentence this is a and again this is not an easy one that's why we want to diagram it take another stab at it nope <laughs> you'll get it eventually you'll get it down uh, try the very beginning of verse 7 he said to them. He said to them. That's the main or controlling independent clause. Now, there's some other independent clauses in there, but that one kind of controls it because now everything else is what he said. And the way to diagram that, uh, let me start. I know how this is going to go, so I'm going to start down here. What's the subject? Okay, he, and the main verb. Okay, he said. Is there any other elements to that? What else is in there? He said to. Well, that's not a direct object. That's a prepositional phrase. He said to them, and I see it as modifying said. So we have. A modifier, it's a modifying prepositional phrase, to them. Does that make sense? He said to them. And then everything else, so the, the passage, or the, the sentence begins here, so this is chapter 1, verse 7, starting right here, but there's more elements to it. And something like a direct object, uh, I think it has a specific grammatical name, I can't remember how it's described, but it acts a lot like a direct object, so I'm going to put a direct object line here to show that everything else is the content of what he said. And the way to do that is to put it up on little stilts, if you will, and everything else is going to kind of come up here, and now I have a series of independent clauses. What's your next independent clause? It is not for you to know. In fact, it, it, the whole thing there. It is not for you to know times or epochs. That's all of the rest of it. And then you have, what do you have after that? That's a dependent clause, everything else in verse 7, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So let's treat, first of all, and since I know how this is going to work out, I'm going to just take a little shortcut here. 
because I already know that I'm going to have some other independent clauses. But the first one, it is the subject, is, now that's a state of being verb, so it's not going to have a direct object, but it's going to have something similar. It's going to have uh, an object complement. So I'm going to do the slanted line thing here. And the subject complement, uh, this is a little complicated, so I'm just going to show it to you without trying to draw it out from you. I'm going to put up on stilts again. Actually, an in, is that an infinitive phrase? To know. And remember, this is the convention of an infinitive. Two parallel vertical lines. To know. That's an infinitive. And we have an, a direct object there. To know times or epochs. Does that make sense? So that's your independent clause. The second independent clause. Now, this is your primary independent clause, but now you have another independent clause, and this is the way I would diagram that. And these epochs, we have a subordinate clause, well, no, uh, to know which, we have a subordinate clause now. The subject of that subordinate clause? The father. The father. And the verb? Has fixed. has fixed. So he doesn't want us to know, oh, I forgot the not for you. He doesn't want us to know this stuff. This is not for us to know, to know which the Father has fixed. And then we have prepositional phrase by authority. It's not any authority, it's his authority. And it's his own authority. Following so far? Does that make sense? So this is also verse 7, let's say 7b. All of that is verse 7b. Satisfied with that? So your main kind of controlling or major independent clause, he said to them. And now we have what he said to them a negative, it is not for them to know these things. He doesn't want them to know these things, uh, these times and epochs. Now, that's modified by this phrase, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. See how it all fits together? See it graphically? All of that is verse 7b. And now we have 1-8. It's going to begin over here, down in this direction. And what's the first word? Uh, but kind of separates what he doesn't want us to know from what he wants us to know or focus in on. And there's how many independent clauses in verse 8? Yeah, there's two there. So I'm going to do this little uh, split thing here. And the subject of the first independent clause, or just read that first independent clause. Okay. You shall receive power. And then what follows it? Uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what is that, grammatically? Uh, dependent. That's a dependent clause. So we're going to have a dependent clause modifying this independent clause. So the subject of the independent clause is you. And the verb? Shall receive. Shall receive. And what's what are they to receive? Power. They shall receive power. Let's, you shall receive power. Now we have a dependent clause, as you said. 
Now there's a time frame when subject of the independent clause when the Holy Spirit what's the verb? Has come. Yeah, has come. And then we have a prepositional phrase upon you. Is that correct? Modifying has come. See how this works? You're just working your way through the sentence. Now it helps to probably before you even start diagramming to think through to, to recognize that this is the main independent clause and then try and isolate the next one. Here's this one and then I have two more here. And these seem to be in contrast because of this strong adversative. But, so I have this over here and then these two things, these two are kind of related and separated by this but. And in fact, they're joined together by an and, right? So I, this is the way I diagram and diagram these. Then we have the other independent clause. The first one, you shall receive power with a subordinate clause modifying it. The receiving takes place when something happens, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And now, the subject of the last independent clause, you again, shall be something. They're going to receive something. Now they're going to be something. You shall be what? Uh, witnesses. Okay, witnesses. But not just any old witnesses, my witnesses. And not, doesn't stop there. This goes on. But we have three geographical locations. Actually, two of them are kind of joined together, right? So that's how, and then with their modifiers that go along with them. So all of this is verse 8. All of this down here. Verse 7 begins here. The, the latter part of verse 7 is up there. And that's the way I would diagram that. See how easy that is? Didn't take us very long to do that sentence. Now the value of it, see immediately, the value of it here, you can see immediately that this kind of controls all of that. So everything over here relates to, even though there's just a few words here, that doesn't mean anything. Grammatically, all of that is controlled by this. Because all of that relates to the said. In fact, all of this is the content of what he said. He said, and this is what he said. This is the content of it. So everything here relates to this. And uh, what he said has three major parts to it. You have this major part. So this is a priority. This is very important because it's an independent clause. And then you have an independent clause here and an independent clause here. So immediately you can see this controls all that, but now you have three major things here. One thing that we're not to concentrate on and two things that we are to concentrate on. And then this just tells us more about that. This tells us more about that. So you can see it on the page, basically what he's saying there. And once you can see it on the page, now you can begin to outline it. And your outline is just basically going to come right out of your diagramming. So you see the value of it? So everything else, uh, all these other words are just modifiers that just add a little bit detail to everything that is important. And obviously, this is very important, this but. 
because it sets a contrast between what you have here with what you have here. And the and here tells you that there's two things here. This shall happen and this shall happen. And these locations are just where all of this is going to take place. But what you've essentially done there is you have exposed the grammatical structure of that sentence.